0: He is alive, and today we we celebrate that reality, that truth. And again, we're so glad uh, to have everyone together. Uh, glad you could join us today if you're visiting with us. And uh, I want to invite you, you know, it's our practice to read the scriptural account of uh, that day of the resurrection and and what happened with it. So I would encourage you uh, to go ahead and open if you have it with you on your phone perhaps or somewhere else, to, to Mark chapter 16. And, uh, and if for some reason you don't have that, uh, don't worry, just listen right along. Uh, but let's stand together. And in Mark chapter 16, we find, uh, we find it says as follows. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Go ahead and take your seats. Today, uh, many of us will be uh, gathering in different places for different occasions of food, usually. And I just wanted to imagine, you imagine with me for a second, that here you are, uh, you've just walked in, and, and perhaps there's a, a fruit plate put in front of you. And you see that strawberry. Do- doesn't that look good? I mean, that looks really, really good. Or, or you see some apples. Uh, but the reality is... Uh, you would not want to eat these because if these particular pieces of fruit were put in front of you, you'd realize something as soon as you took a bite. It's an old trick. You see, when you're making ads for food, deodorant makes fruit shiny. And so you put deodorant on, it looks really good. But it's not. And of course, these are kind of known tricks to us now. For example, if you happen to be doing an ad for maple syrup, you don't want to use maple syrup. You'd rather use oil because it looks a lot better. But trust me, you don't want to eat that plate of pancakes. And of course, when you're doing a whipped cream ad of some kind, you want to use shaving cream instead because shaving cream looks a lot better than whipped cream. And, and of course, we kind of already know these things though, right? This is sort of a, a part of how we've grown up today. As a matter of fact, today, uh, seeing fake things on the screen has been sort of a regular part of our lives. I mean, we've become accustomed to it as a culture and as a people. Uh, We live in the era of the deep fake, right? We live in the time when software can now digitally enhance images and video to to place things in the frame that were actually never really there at all in the first place. And and then it's really hard to tell. And that's why, you know, legal scholars right now are debating how technology, especially this technology, is going to end up affecting what kinds of evidence are admissible in court. Uh, There's journalists who are facing the more challenging prospect of trying to do fact-checking when they're dealing with data, files, and other things that they have to make sure these are actually real. And of course, in the meantime, then for all of us, as we see all this happening before us, we can kind of get to the place of going, I don't know if anything's really real. I mean, how can I even tell? I mean, imagine this, you know, let's let's say you're someone who works, in the food advertising business, you spent all day doing a Carl's Jr. ad, all right? And you have taken that Carl's Jr. burger, and by the way, what do they use on burgers? Shoe polish, okay? So you have shoe polished this burger, you've sprayed some shiny stuff on it with hairspray, it's glistening, it's looking good, and then someone comes up to you and brings you a real hamburger. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, a burger from In-N-Out, all right? (laughs) You know, and they, And they bring you a real burger, okay? But you've been working on this fake thing for so long and you're just kind of going, you know what? I'm not eating that. It's not real. And you're going, no, look, it's real. Seriously, it's real. I know the thing you've been looking at all day is not real. I get that. But this is real. I mean, what a tragedy, right? Not only are you rejecting the kindness of a friend, but this person misses out on a really great meal. Why? Because skepticism has overtaken their life. And the reality is, is we can do the very same thing with the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Well, it's because there are so many things that are faked. There are fake saviors. There are fake people claiming all kinds of things about salvation and how you can have this and you can have that, and this is going to do all sorts of things in your life. There are fake places and people attempting to manipulate others spiritually for gain. But the truth is, today, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and we're looking today at Christ's resurrection, and we're saying, it's real, real resurrection. And so we're going to talk today about, about how his resurrection is real, and how we can see that. And, and, and maybe you're with us today, and you are in that place of feeling skeptical. I mean, it could be that you're here, and, and truth be told, you know, uh, you're here because a friend invited you, or a family member invited you, or... Or you know that the meal at their house is going to be great later today so this is kind of like a small price to pay, right? You're going to endure this thing. You know, I hope this guy finishes soon. I want to get out of here. And we understand that. But but I want you to know we're really glad you're here. And and my hope would be for you that in this time you really would consider the claims of Jesus Christ. They're historical. They're real. And, and, and you can bring your doubts with you, please do. Bring your questions with you. Uh, don't check your brain at the door. That, that, if that's what you thought this was, that's not, that's not this place. Uh, we bring those things with us. We en- want to engage with everything that we are. God gave you that mind. He expects you to use it. Um, but the truth is we need to deal with these things. And, and, and something else I want you to know, I, I, I will likely not answer all of your objections today, but I, but I hope you'll hear me out. And, and if you do have questions still, I'd, I'd love to talk with you more. Others here have, would love to talk to you more. I'd love to give some resources to you as well to continue uh, that process. But let's, let's begin our exploration of the resurrection of Jesus today by, by first observing one thing. Jesus' resurrection is historically real. And, uh, and we would see this, first of all, in, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is describing uh, what the resurrection means. Why? Well, there, because there were people in the church at Corinth. Get this. And, and they were people who claimed to be believers. They didn't believe in the resurrection either. They didn't buy it. So Paul's going, hey, time out. Let's talk about this. And, and here's what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There you go. That's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the good news in a nutshell. That's what happened. And, and you would think, okay, well, it's easy, really easy to say that, Paul. You can say that, but come on. Give me some, give me more than that. I mean, just you saying that doesn't make it true. And so what does Paul do? He goes on, and he says this, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You know why he says that? He says that because he's saying, hey, over 500 at one time, go talk to them yourselves. They're still alive. You can ask. Though some have fallen asleep, that's, that's a way of saying some, some have died, but, but, but some are still here. He goes on. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So, you can see the accounts going on and on. And then Paul refers to himself. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. So, So, certainly, over the centuries, Paul, Paul's written this. The gospel accounts we read earlier from the gospel of Mark. They, they all have a depiction of what happened. These are eyewitness accounts. And that's important because sometimes there'll be several uh, uh, objections. Um, author Rebecca McLaughlin has written, wrote in a, written a wonderful book. Uh, it's called Confronting Christianity. I'd recommend it to you. Uh, but she highlights some of the ways, the discrepancies that we would see in the gospels rather than weakening the historical account and how we'd receive them, it actually strengthens them. Because think about this. If you've ever been called into court as a witness for something, or if you've ever been on a jury before, what, one thing that really becomes apparent is that as we bear witness of an event, because we're standing in different places during that moment, we see different things. It doesn't mean it's a, the event is false. It means that as we observe them, certain things are more prominent to some people than other people. And so when we look at the gospel accounts, for example, a lot of times people will hop in there and go, hey, see, that, that doesn't say what this says. Yeah, you're right, it doesn't. Because this is this person's vantage point on the same event as this person's vantage point is from another angle on, the, on that very same event. And so those different people saw different elements of the resurrection of Jesus, and so the accounts are not exactly the same. By the way, if all the accounts were exactly the same, you know what that would tell us? It was a cover-up. That's the beauty of of the New Testament. Matter of fact, there's there's other things that we would see that highlight the reality of this historical account. For example, um, women are the first and primary witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. That is so cool on so many levels. But you know why it mattered in the first century? Because sadly, in many contexts and places, the testimony of a woman was not considered credible. So if you were gonna make up an account, the last thing you would do is make women the primary first witness of that event. But here's the thing, they are described as that. You know why? Because they were. Because that's how God wanted it to unfold. But we would see some other things too. When you look at the gospel accounts, you find a lot of stuff. You find that the disciples, they engaged in petty arguments about who was the greatest. Hey, if you're going to write an account about yourself, you're not putting that in there, are you? Unless it happened. And there are other things that would be embarrassing. Uh, They misunderstood Jesus' teaching in in certain key moments. Here's another one. All of Jesus' male followers deserted him. Are you going to put that in? I'm not. Matter of fact, Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers and friends and a key leader, he actually denied three times in a row, actually swearing the final time that he didn't know Jesus at all. Each of these details are really, really bad PR for the apostles. And so because of that, they would have been revamped, they would have been removed from the gospel accounts if the writers were not so committed to recording what really happened. They, by the way, they wouldn't have made that up, would they? What if that didn't happen? Are they going to make up those things? I don't think so. There have been other objections to the gospel accounts over the centuries, and we can't go into all of them, um, one would be Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted or passed out is the idea. And uh, But here's the thing. Think about this for a moment. What did Roman centurions excel at more than anything else? Killing people. That was their job, and they were very good at it. Not to mention, again, in the historical account of the Gospels, we find that they verified that Jesus was dead. They didn't break his legs because they didn't need to. They pierced his side with a a spear and blood and water came out, the separation of the blood, and that was the sign, no, this guy's already dead. They knew that. And, And that's the thing. Not only were the centurions very skilled at this, the Romans loved employing crucifixion every time the various Messiah movements came up in the first century. And there were a lot of them. There were lots of different Messiah movements through the first century. And that brings up another question. Look, if there were all these different Messiah movements in the first century, what makes Jesus any different than any of them? Well, here's the thing. Most of those movements ended in crucifixion. Most of those movements also ended with their followers fleeing and going back to their homes. Or they would find themselves a new Messiah. So the mantle would be passed on. Typically, the mantle would be passed on to a close relative or an associate, So, in the case of Jesus, who could that have been? Well, James would be a good candidate. Why? He's Jesus' brother. Why not? Or, Or maybe Peter, maybe John. And so, each of these men were leaders in the early church. However, realize this, not one of them attempted to claim Messiahship. And not only that, rather than the disciples picking a new Messiah leader, they instead declared that Jesus was raised from the dead. And most of them died for that declaration, which would certainly not have done they wouldn't have done that had they created this as a, some sort of a scam. So now Jesus, from the evidence in front of us, we would see clearly he was completely different. He rose again. He rose from the dead. And certainly the resurrection seems incredible to us, as, as it did uh, for Thomas you, know, you maybe you'll recall that from, from one of the gospel accounts Thomas was like I'm not going to believe until I put my fingers in, in the wounds on his hands and I touch his side where the spear went in what happens uh, Jesus shows up he shows up you know what he does he actually says hey you guys have any fish he was hungry wanted to eat He's showing them that he's not just some sort of disembodied spirit. And then he says, Thomas, go ahead. And what does Thomas do? He falls on his face and he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas was not a guy given to believing in fantasies or stories. He was the skeptic. And that's what we need to understand. If there's a God who made the universe, we cannot possibly completely rule out the possibility of miracles. Because the one who put the laws of nature in place is the one who can put them on hiatus for moments of time, intervene within them from time to time. He can do whatever he wants. So Jesus' resurrection It's historically real. But it's not only historically real. It's also prophetically real. You see, one of God's favorite ways of showing us of his divine nature and his plan and his power over all things is to declare what's going to happen before it happens, and then as history unfolds, saying, see, that's what I said was going to happen, and that's how it worked, And so when you look at the prophecies of the Old Testament, we would see them falling into kind of three main categories. One would be prophecies concerning Israel's future, future in the land. Uh, Secondly, we also see prophecies that would center on the person and work of the coming Messiah, the promised one, the one who would come to take all wrongs and make them right, the rightful king and ruler of all. And then thirdly, we would see prophecies in the Old Testament that would describe the last days, the end times, uh, the end of the age when the kingdom of God will be set up on earth. And so this pattern comes up over and over again. God speaks and tells people what's going to happen specifically in detail before it happens. And then he links that with who he is as sovereign ruler of all. So we can find that, for example, in, in the prophet Isaiah, written approximately right around 600 BC or so. And what what does God declare there? He says, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming, the events that are going to take place. He goes on. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. And then he goes on to tell them what's going to happen with the coming uh, times of Israel's enemies overtaking her. Um, we see it in Daniel chapter two where specific time frames, specific kingdoms that would uh, rule over different portions of the world are d- described centuries before they even come on the scene. And we find that described in detail. We find with Jesus himself, everything from where he was born in Bethlehem to the way he would live his life to the way he would die, they're all contained in Old Testament prophecies. Some have counted up to 600 or so. Specific prophecies about Jesus are to be found in the Old Testament. And so we see that God is saying, I am the one that does this for a reason so that you would know. And what's amazing to see is that Jesus picks up that same pattern in the New Testament, and so what he says in John 13, 19 is this, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. The Lord Jesus is doing the same thing. He had just quoted, by the way, Psalm 41, 9, which says this, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's referring to Jesus. I'm sorry, he's referring to Judas and his coming betrayal. And, and the way it's described here, you know, to the bottom of one's foot uh, to someone in the Near East is, a, is a really a mark of contempt. It's, it's like the idea of a vicious attack or being kicked by a horse or something. And so he's saying, look, I am being betrayed in a vicious way, but know this, I'm not being taken by surprise. And by the way, he also said to them several other things. He said repeatedly, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're like, that's a bad idea, Lord, don't do that. Yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again on the third day. He said it over and over to them. They did not grasp it. They did not hear it. They did not understand it. But Jesus here with with Judas, as he uncovers this traitor, it's further evidence that he is the I am. He is the all-sufficient one, the all-knowing one. And so when, when Jesus does those things, he's doing again What what was done by by the Father in the Old Testament as well, repeatedly saying what's going to happen before it comes to pass. Uh, You might recall before uh, Palm Sunday, he said, you're going to go into the city. You're going to find a colt. The owner's going to say, why are you taking the colt? You're going to say, the master has need of it. What did they do? They went into the town. What did they find? A colt. The the the, the owner said, what are you doing with it? They said, the master has need of it. I mean, that's what happened. He's calling us to know that he is the Lord God Almighty, that he's telling the truth. And if we can believe what he has said prior to it happening, we can believe that he is the promised one. And we need to humble ourselves. We need to submit to his rule. We need to receive the forgiveness of sins that he sacrificially purchased and graciously gives. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, how do we deal with these things? And and we can try to just sort of play it off as, well, it's a coincidence uh, I'm not a mathematician, but I can tell you right now the odds of 600-plus prophecies coming to pass in one person's life, Woo! if you believe that's a coincidence, uh, I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of slick salespeople that would love to sell you some things, you know? Because that's really hard to believe. So Jesus' resurrection, it, it, it's, it's not only historically real. Secondly, it's not only prophetically real. But... It's also personally real. In other words, this thing about the resurrection that we celebrate today, it's available to you personally right now. And maybe you're thinking, well, so what? You know, wh- why should I care? Whether he did or not, doesn't matter to me. Well, here's the thing. Our God is what the Bible would call holy. As a matter of fact, the Bible uses the phrase holy, holy, holy to emphatically describe God's perfection. That's what the word holiness means. The, hol- the word holy means to be other than, to be perfect, to be sinless. And the reality is, if we look at God's holiness, and then we look at ourselves, we've got to be honest and see something here. We're not holy. No, we're the opposite. We're... We dishonor God in countless ways every day in our thoughts, in our words, in what we do. And, and, and Jesus is returning. He's coming again, but, but when he comes back, he's not coming as a baby. Instead, he's coming as the righteous judge of all. And when we reject his grace, grace is, is giving us that which we don't deserve. When we reject his grace, he then gives us what we want in a sense. We're saying, Lord, I don't want to deal with you based on your grace. And he goes, okay, if that's the case, I will then deal with you based on my justice. That's the opposite of grace. Grace is not getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what we deserve. And for all who refuse his salvation, he's going to judge them with everlasting destruction. The phrases that Jesus uses for that are a fire that's not quenched. He's referring to hell. And he's saying, you can trust in me, you can depend upon my grace, or you can interact with me based on my justice. The choice is yours. But you will have to deal with me, he says, one way or the other. Now, sometimes a question comes up, and it's a good question. So we're like, wait a minute. How, how can sin deserve everlasting destruction? I mean, why would God punish sin in that way? Can't God just take it easy? What's the big deal? Uh, there was a youth pastor who, who got this question from a thoughtful middle school student who was wrestling through these issues. And, and so he outlined uh, this thing with the following scenario. He says, you know, suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. And so what happens? Well, among other things, the student's going to be suspended from the school. But then suppose his frustration builds through the semester, and later the boy acts out by punching a teacher. What's going to happen? Well, among other things, he's going to be expelled from the school. Now, suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a police officer in the jaw. What happens? He's going to find himself in jail. And then suppose years go by and the same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the president of the United States. And suppose he lunges forward to punch the president. And what happens? He's shot dead by the Secret Service. So in every case, the crime is precisely the same, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it's committed. And here's the thing, God is the perfect, loving creator. So please know, when we sin against him, and all of us do, all of us do, when we sin against him, the rightful punishment is everlasting destruction. But thankfully, God doesn't leave us here. He entered into this broken world himself. Jesus came to live the life that we could never live. And he died the death that you and I both deserve. And and so what happens on the cross is that God's justice is placed there as Jesus pays for all sin. And yet grace and mercy also are placed there as all who will trust in him receive rather than that death they deserve life from his righteousness. It's a gift. It's a gift that you can't pay for. It's a gift that you can't earn. You cannot be religious enough to gain this gift. You can't do enough morally right things to earn this gift. No, Instead, the Bible simply says this, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I love how Paul describes it in the book of Romans. He says this in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's a beautiful declaration. It means we look at what Christ has done. We look at the offer that he's giving us in salvation and we receive it. We trust him. We believe. That pattern we also see throughout the whole Bible from the Old Testament all the way through to the New. God is saying the entire time, trust me, trust me, trust me. Every time we sin, you know what we're saying? I don't trust you. If you're here today and you're a skeptic or you're wrestling with doubts, and you maybe believe that everything we've been talking about today is just some sort of elaborate hoax, especially that Jesus rose again from the dead, I want to encourage you to really take the time to think about what we talked about. Because whoever you are, wherever you find yourself today, maybe you're joining us online, maybe you're here in person. The call to you is to trust in Jesus today, to confess him as Lord, to believe or trust that he rose from the dead. And the promise we find here remains true. You will be saved. And then what happens? Something amazing happens. In that moment, when you believe and confess him his resurrection actually becomes yours paul describes it like this as he concludes his discussion with the corinthian church about the resurrection he says this behold i tell you a mystery Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear the resounding, triumphal, beautiful symphony that comes about in these verses? when you receive Jesus, you receive him as Lord and Savior and his resurrection is given to you in the same way that your death was taken on by him on the cross. It's a just exchange just because he willingly did this to rescue sinners like you and me. So Jesus' resurrection is historically real, it's prophetically real, and it's personally real. Will you trust him today? Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed, I want each of us here to ask, where am I really at with God today right now? might be that I go to church each Sunday. It might be that I'm just here periodically. But the reality is, is he is the one who has made all things, including you. And all things belong to him, including you. He lovingly commands all of us to honor and obey him in every thought, word, and deed. And we don't do that. We willfully walk self-centered lives. We argue, we cheat, we envy, and the Bible calls that sin. And thankfully, if that's you, you're in the right place. Jesus came to save sinners. So as our heads are bowed, I want to allow for a moment of quiet prayer between you and God. And in the silence of your heart, as he's working in your life or as you would desire to do so because you see things about yourself and about him that he's holy and that that you're not. In this silence, I'm gonna ask that you admit in your heart that you're a sinner. In this silence, I'm gonna gonna ask that you would turn to him and, and ask him to forgive you in Christ. So let's just share this quiet moment with our heads bowed together now. Heavenly Father, all of us like sheep, have strayed away. We've, we've left our, our righteous ruler, and we've made ourselves king instead. We've left your paths, God, to follow our own, paths that we've invented, that we've laid for ourselves, and they all lead to disillusionment and ultimately destruction. And yet we thank you that you, O oh Lord, laid on Jesus the sins of us all, and that he was pierced for our rebellion, that he was crushed for our sins, that he was beaten so that we could be whole, that he was whipped so that we could be healed. We thank you for your offer of salvation in Christ to all who believe. Lord, we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If here today you have received God's gift of salvation in Jesus, we praise him with you. And so as we rejoice, we also want to help you understand some things. As you've made that commitment to walk with Christ, as you've received that gift of salvation, the Bible tells us a few things. First of all, it's really important that you let somebody know. Why? Because you can't walk through this life alone. Uh, The Bible doesn't talk. There's there's no version of walking with Jesus that means I walk alone with Jesus. We walk together as brothers and sisters. And so maybe it's the person who invited you here today. Uh, Maybe if you found us online, you can just reach out to us at info at claytonvalleychurch.com. Maybe if you just come on by and you're not here with anybody, just talk to me. I'll be out there on the patio. I'm always out there. Just talk to me. Uh, Talk to anybody you like. Uh, But we want to help you take those next steps. Also, you need to get into the Bible. This uh, is to your soul what milk is to a baby. And you need to have a lot of Bible intake going on. And there's a resource table there in the foyer area on your way out. There's plenty of Bibles there on the table. And we've got one just for you. And so please do take one. It's, It's a gift for you to just thank you for being with us. There's other resources there as well. Grab them as you would like. And, and let's make sure that um, as you embark upon this new life with the Lord, that you do so in a way whereby you can grow. Uh, make sure that um, you do those things, and we'll, we would love to help you uh, take those next steps. We praise the Lord that he is risen indeed, and now we're, we're going to be continuing to worship him in song, and, and Josh and Brielle are going to share a song with us, and, and I just really want to encourage you to think about the words. As you listen, think about what's being said because it has everything to do with Christ's real resurrection.
1: See, on the hill of Calvary, my Savior bled for me My Jesus set me free And look at the wounds that give me life Grace flowing from His side No greater sacrifice
2: i